Hi, this is Michael, and you're listening to Soma's podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing and subscribing. It's our vision as a church to help as many people come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. This podcast is a vehicle to further that vision. If the content has encouraged you in any way, we'd love to invite you to join us in helping us reach more people with the message of Jesus through this podcast and all that we do as a church. You can help by giving on our website at soma.church. We're in a series in the book of Mark called Kingdom Come, and the journey through Mark leads us up to Easter. If you're ever in the area on a Sunday, we'd love to host you. For more information about location and service times, you can visit us at soma.church. Enjoy the message. We're in our Mark series, and uh, this is the fifth week in Kingdom Come, the series that we're in around the book of Mark, and we're excited for today. If you came to Dream Team Conference yesterday, you heard our speaker, but um, Pastor Jason, he's, he's got tenure with the church, and he's, just, he's positioned really now in this season to be able to just go and, and speak to a bunch of different churches and really kind of come alongside a lot of leaders, but he, uh, he, he's worked at Healing Place Church in Louisiana and Gateway Church under Robert Morris in Texas, and they sent him to plant a church called Sozo Church in in San Francisco, and then, uh, but now in this season, he leads an organization called Sidecar, and he helps plant other churches and really just come alongside leaders and organizations. Man, it's our privilege, it's our honor to be able to have him and Cole, who's with him this week. Because would y'all honor them? Come on, would you just welcome him as he comes and he shares God's word? Come on, I want you to give Jesus your best praise. They did not do that at the 8 a.m. service, okay? It's good to see you today. Uh, how many of you were able to be a part uh, yesterday for team conference? You're here today. Yeah. Uh, we had an amazing time yesterday, and I just want to take a moment just to say uh, just a huge thank you to your pastors. How many of you love your pastors? You love Pastor Michael Brooke? Um, thank you. Honestly, thank you for just, the, just for entrusting me with yesterday to be able to speak into not just like a moment like this, but to the core of your church uh, it's a huge honor to be able to do that. What you guys are, are building here uh, is, is significant, and it's amazing to see what God is doing. And um, we were able to spend some time together, uh, even last night over dinner, and just talk a little bit about vision and what God's doing. And, and it's just it's really inspiring to see this, just in a short period of time, what all God has done. I mean, you guys, I don't think you can add any more services. It's just like it, you guys are growing and growing and growing I don't know how you preach four on Sunday, man. I'm like, after two, I'm like, I need a power nap. I mean, seriously. Uh, but uh, God is doing something awesome. It's, it's great to see the church growing, not just in size, but in depth and uh, maturity. And uh, I just sense that whenever I'm having conversations with people that are here, there's a genuine hunger for God here. Um, and it's very authentic. It's not hype. It's hunger. It's a true hunger for the presence of God and to see God do something powerful in this region. And I, I truly do believe, like, there will, be more, there will be more services, there will be more uh, locations, there will, be, there will be a lot more because God's hand is on this house, and he is breathing on this church, and it's, uh, it's an honor to get to be a part and just play a little small role in speaking into the life of the church, and so thank you from the bottom of my heart. Come on, one more time, let's clap our hands and show our love and appreciation, and, um, and uh, I bring greetings on behalf of my family, I have a beautiful wife, I, I forgot to a picture up here of a beautiful wife, Jennifer. We've been uh, married now for 18 years, been dating for over 25 years, 
And, uh, and I'm just telling you, I, I didn't bring a picture, but I'm telling you, she's, she's incredibly beautiful. And if you see her and you see me, you know that the Lord still does miracles. And uh, why are you laughing? Uh, anyway, uh, but maybe you're here, you're single, you're scoping, you're hoping. I'm telling you, the Lord will bless you with a beautiful spouse if you just surrender your life to him. I mean, that's just my plug right there. Uh, he blessed me. He hooked me up. But I have a great wife. She loves Jesus. She loves me. Uh, and she loves our kids. We are blessed with three of the most beautiful kids. Uh, we have two little boys, 13 and 10, Liam and Nixon. And then we have a little girl. She's three and a half. She'll be four in May. Her name is Novi Sophia. And uh, people told me, they're like, you're going to, it's just different when you have a little girl. It's just different. I'm like, there's no way it's different. Kids are kids. They just take your money, make you poor. That's what they do. They're all the same. And they're like, no, I'm telling you, just wait till you have this little girl. And I'm here to tell you, it's true. I, I, she could have anything. I will go bankrupt. Like, I love this little girl so much. Uh, every trip, she's like, Daddy. She calls me Dada. Dada, will you please bring me something home? So I've got to stop by every airport, you know, little, you know, the little trinket stores and airports. She spend $75 for something that probably cost 30 cents. But i got to show up with something in hand because she's going to be waiting. But anyway, but I'm super blessed. We live in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, and uh, as Pastor Michael said, we're, we're leading an organization called Sidecar Leader. And really, it's just this, just taking the last 23 years of, of ministry experience and coming alongside lead pastors and executive leadership teams that are building the local church. And uh, we just come alongside them and coach them and resource them and help them uh, fulfill the call of God on their life and, and see their vision come to fruition. And it is an honor to get to do that, to get to serve in that capacity. Another thing we do is we resource church planters and we train church planters uh, with a partnership with Association of Related Churches. And we've planted over 1,000 churches in North America. Uh, this year, we'll plant another 50 or 60 churches. We're planting, I think, three churches this weekend. There are three churches being planted. And so my passion, saying all that to tell you, my passion is the local church. I love pastors, and I love the local church because I truly do believe that a healthy, life-giving, flourishing local church, it is the hope of the world. It, it, it literally can transform communities when a group of people, and I don't, I'm not talking about bricks and mortar, but when the people of God, the church, are fully devoted followers of Jesus, committed to the cause of Jesus and serving uh, a city, serving a region, I truly believe it can change statistics. It can change numbers. It, it can change things where there's areas that are broken in your city that are declining or going down from whole, homelessness being rampant to drug addiction to domestic violence, all those things, if they're high, a church, a life-giving church. Uh, can transform a community and see those numbers come down. I just believe it with all my heart. And so I love the local church, and it's an honor to get to, to be here today. If you have your Bible, I want you to go with me over to the book of Mark. Book of Mark. You guys have been studying uh, this brilliant um, gospel account uh, by Mark, and uh, I think you should have some notes you can take notes on. Uh, where are all my young folks at? If you're under 21, you're young, okay? Uh, right here, okay. Uh, my youth and young adult pastor used to always say, Jason, note takers are history makers. Like, you want to make history, you better take some notes. And so, but that doesn't just apply to some of the young folks up here. If you're here in the house, man, take notes. You never know what God may speak to you in a moment. I've had some of the most significant prophetic words that have been spoken that have changed the trajectory of my life in a moment just like this, just a normal Sunday. Uh, just showing up, but with an open heart, leaning in, expecting, and God has spoken things that has transformed and changed my life. And so I want to encourage you to, to write down some notes. And we're going to jump into it in just a moment. Uh, Mark, I know that you guys have mentioned this uh, before, but maybe you're new here today. Uh, maybe you, um, maybe you're, you're, you, you haven't been able to come and be a part of this collection of, of talks. 
Uh, so I want to just remind you this. The book of Mark is actually, a lot of people think that Mark is written by one of the original uh, 12 disciples or 12 apostles, but it's not. It's actually, he wasn't one of the, the 12. Uh, his name was actually John Mark. You'll read about John Mark over in the book of Acts. He would go on those missionary journeys with the apostle Paul and Barnabas, specifically the first missionary journey. He was a part of that. So he had this heart to bring the gospel of Jesus, the good news to people and to reach people and uh, to do what Jesus said to do in Matthew 28, which was to make disciples of Jesus. So that was his heart. He was also known as Mark the Evangelist. So there was this evangelistic calling on his life to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Uh, he desired deeply for people to come to faith in Christ because his life had radically been transformed um, through a relationship with Jesus. And now he wanted other people to experience the same thing. Uh, Mark is, is, is written, this particular book is written to the Gentiles, not to the Jewish audience, but to Gentiles. And really it's a, it's a narrative proclamation of the person and work of Jesus. Uh, namely that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he died on a cross, he rose again, and he was restoring all things to himself. And so this was his message. This is the theme there in the whole book of Mark. But I want, I want to draw your attention to this, and maybe you guys have already mentioned this, but Mark, John Mark, he was so devoted as a follower of Jesus, he was so devoted that history tells us that he goes to Alexandria in Egypt and he's going there to bring the message of Jesus there. And he, is, he faces all kinds of opposition, great resistance to the message. It wasn't an open door of ministry, but he just went. He's like kicking the door in like people need to hear about Jesus. And he was violently opposed to the point where um, the community tied a, a rope around his neck and, and dragged him through the streets of Alexandria until he died. So this was a man that was committed to Jesus, even to give up his life. He was martyred for the faith. And, and what he did before he, he died was, scholars tell us that the apostle Peter, one of the original 12, would share, as he was discipling this young man, John Mark, he would share with John Mark all the different stories of of Jesus's life and all the ministry moments and the teachings and the words of Jesus. And John Mark just, he captured all that in writing and he wanted specifically the Gentile people to, to catch this. And so this brings us uh, to the text that we're going to read here. The title of my message is really simple today. It's actually a question. It's this, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Mark chapter 8, Jesus actually, in his own words, he answers that question. He, he has just done miracles. Uh, he's just had a, a lengthy conversation with the disciples about his identity. He asks them, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say you're the prophet, Elijah, and go on and on and on. And he says, but who do you say? He personalizes, like, who do you say that I am? And they, it's Peter that says, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God, and Jesus says, you're right. And so he says this in front of the whole crowd. He's making claim that he is the Messiah, that he is the one that they've been waiting for. And on the heels of that, he, he calls the entire crowd, not just his disciples, but the entire crowd around him, after a revelation of him being the Son of God and the Messiah. And then he says this. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and says, whoever wants to be my disciple must, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, they will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, they will save it. This is the invitation of Jesus to be his follower. 
I became a follower of Jesus when I was 18 years old, and, you know, I, I grew up in church. I don't know if you're here today and you grew up in church. By a show of hands, how many of you here, is there anyone here that you're a, a pastor's kid? You're a, a preacher's kid? Got someone in the back? Got a few up here? Um, I, I, I'm a PK. There's a saying, and the PKs will know this. People used to say PKs are the worst is what people would always say. And I was like, why do they stereotype us like that? We're not the worst. We're actually the best. And... Uh, <clears throat> but I grew up in church, and my parents were Assemblies of God church planters all over the southeast, and uh, I also did some missions work in India and a few other places in South America, and um, I grew up in church. But just because you, you go to church doesn't actually make you a follower of Jesus, right? Just because you, you know, you, you're, you're a part of a community where other people claim to be Christ followers, it doesn't necessarily make you one. Um, and so... That was me. I grew up and I was like, I wasn't really into it. I was into girls. I was into fashion. I was into, I really loved Michael Jackson. I mean, who didn't back then? He was amazing. I would wear a red and black pleather jacket. My parents were like, dude, why are you doing this? I wanted my jeans to be really like super tight and I would, I would dry them, like extra dry them in the, in the dryer and they looked like they got sprayed on me. My dad's like, son, we need to talk. We need to have a conversation here, you know? And, um, but I grew up in church, and, but I wasn't into it. Like, I wasn't into church at all. And um, probably when I was in junior high, I started to, you know, I started seeing other junior high students starting to follow Jesus and make a decision. So I felt a little positive peer pressure, like, maybe I should give this a shot. And I started having questions about faith and about Jesus. And I would talk to my parents about it a little bit. But what happened was, when I was about 14 years old, my parents, their marriage began to just ravel at the seams. My dad had a lot of issues from his childhood, his family of origin, where there was abuse and different things, and he just never dealt with it. And, you know, whatever issues you don't deal with, eventually they're going to deal with you. And the pressure and pace of life or business or ministry or whatever industry you may be in, I'm telling you, when pressure begins to happen, what's in you, it's going to come out. And so my dad, under lots of pressure as a pastor, the pace of ministry, preaching, writing sermons, like felt like every day, revivals, all the stuff that they were doing, it just, it started to come out and it was anger, there was resentment, there was bitterness. He became very uh, abusive with his words. So he was verbally abusive, emotionally abusive, very controlling to my mother. And eventually the, he got very violent, began to abuse our family physically. And it was like he was just imploding on the inside. And, and then ultimately he began to have multiple affairs with different ladies from the church. And as you can imagine, as a 15-year-old, I began to question a lot about God. This is a pastor, and he's doing these things. I wasn't even thinking of it like this is my father. I was thinking, this is a pastor that are, is doing these things. There's no way that God can be real. If churches like this are made up of people like this, I want nothing to do with it. And I begin to wrestle on the inside. And because of my disappointment with my father, who was also my pastor, which when you think about the duality of relationships there, the blurred lines, it's very confusing for a teenager. It's confusing for anyone. But I had both my father and my pastor and my mom's husband. I'm looking at this through that lens, and I begin to be so disappointed in God to the point where I began to deconstruct my faith, my parents' faith, and the faith as a whole. And I walked away from God. Before I ever really fully committed to him, I walked away from him. And I thought, I want nothing to do with this, this whole thing, Christianity. This is ridiculous. I don't know if you've ever been disappointed by a church or by a spiritual leader, but maybe you, you can relate to that. You feel that. 
Sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus because of his followers. I think it was Gandhi that said, I really like this Jesus, but it's his followers I can't, I can't handle. See, it was me. I just began to de- deconstruct church and faith, and which, by the way, that, that is massively happening right now in this generation. Massive deconstruction and people walking away. A lot of it is because of some of the things that have happened in culture that's accelerating this. But it happened to me, and I walked away, and I was like, I want nothing to do with this. And I kind of gave God the proverbial middle finger. I don't want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with, with church. I lived with my high school football coach. My mom lived in a battered women's shelter, and I was estranged from my father for many years. But at 18 years old, addicted to many things, very broken, very confused, away from God, my mom praying like crazy, you know, prayers of, of a mom, they, they cannot be, you know, there's nothing they can, can compare to them. Like, my mom prayed nonstop. I, I would literally, like, listen, I didn't say this in the other services. I would come home after being out partying all night. I would go to my bedroom, and there would be hand marks on my wall, and, and I could smell something on my pillow. My mom would go in while I was out partying, and she would anoint my entire bedroom with oil, like, like, and anoint my pillow with oil. I'm like, Mom, what have you done here? She's like, I was praying and interceding for you, and I was anointing your pillow with oil. I was like, oil? I was like, Mom, that smells like canola oil. <laughs> She's like, that is holy oil from, the, from Israel. I'm like, Mom, that is from the grocery store. That's canola oil, and I can smell it. I know it. I smell like frying chicken in my bedroom. Just. But at 18, I gave my life to Jesus. And I fully surrendered to him, and I said, okay, I'm done. I've been leading my life, and it's leading me to jail. It's leading me to broken relationships. It's leading me to addiction. It's leading me to a place I don't like what I'm seeing. And I hit rock bottom. Got on my knees in my mom's apartment, and I gave my life to Jesus in the year 2000. But then I begin to ask this question. Is following Jesus just about making a decision, or is it about becoming a disciple? And what does it mean to be a disciple? Because... Being a disciple seems like it's more than just praying a prayer or clicking, or checking a box on a card. It seems like it's more than just going to church. Like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Like, if I'm going to follow Jesus, like, I was following the devil and I was going pretty hard in the paint. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to go all in then. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? I begin to wrestle with that question. For some of you in here in this space And just like the other services, some of you, you've been following Jesus for a long time. You've been a follower. You've identified as a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're 60, but maybe it was when you were 12. You committed your life to Jesus, and you've done your best to follow him. For some of you, you're new to the faith. Maybe you've just recently committed your life to Jesus. Maybe you even came to faith in Christ here at this church, this amazing church. You you walked in these doors. You were broken. You were confused. You were maybe even struggling through certain strongholds in your life. And you came in like, I'm at rock bottom, and I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I just need help. And you heard a message from Pastor Michael or Brooke or someone about the, the love of Jesus and how God's grace is sufficient for you and can transform your life. And you say, I, I want that. See, there's, there's, there's so many different spiritual journeys in here. And maybe you've been following for a long time. Maybe you've been following for a short time. Or maybe you're here and you're like, I'm not a follower of Jesus. My mom convinced me to come today. My mom used to pay me $200 to go to summer camp. She was like, I don't care how I got to get him there. I just got to get him there because he's living like the devil. Right? So I'm not sure. Maybe you're a searcher today. Maybe you're seeking. Maybe you're wondering, what does it mean? to follow Jesus. 
What does it mean? I can't wait for you guys to get a brand new, beautiful building because we will not hear that train in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Seriously, last service, towards the end of the service, I'm like, we're having this spiritual moment, and the train starts going by, and I, my eyes were closed, and I opened my eyes, and I looked because I was like, is Jesus coming back right now? Like, dear God. This is awesome. Anyway, I digress. So wherever you may fall on the spectrum, as a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're seeking and you're searching, maybe you're even here and you're a skeptic, that's okay. We're just glad that you're in the room. But what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? There's this word disciple that you see in Scripture, and we don't really use it much, um, but it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's this word in Aramaic, and you would see it. Um, when you look in Scriptures, they're written in Greek, Hebrew, and there's some Aramaic, and the word disciple is Talmud or Talmudim, which is plural, disciples. It's a very Hebrew understanding of this would be this. this in, in the Aramaic would be a disciple is an apprentice or a student or a learner or a pupil of what? Of a rabbi. A rabbi was a Jewish teacher of the Torah, the prophets, and some of those things. And so these disciples would follow after these rabbis. And I think you guys have talked about this a bit here but um, let me just run through it quickly, that the three main goals of a disciple was this. It was to know what the rabbi knows, to do what the rabbi does, and to know why the rabbi does it. Why? In order to be just like the rabbi in their walk with God. And so when Jesus would call disciples to come and follow him, here's what he's saying as a rabbi. I want you to come and follow me, and I want you to know what I, want, know, what I know. I want you to do what I do, and I want you to know why I do what I do. And as you come and you follow me, you're going to learn to practice my ways and to be in relationship with God the Father. And, and then you're going to carry that on to other people. This was the invitation and the call to Jesus. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did. Isn't that a great definition of discipleship to Jesus? Just to be with him first and foremost. You see, Jesus is less concerned with what you're doing. He's more concerned with who you're becoming. And you'll never become like him unless you spend time with him. It's not about activity for God, it's intimacy with God. And so the first thing is come and be with me, and then I'm going to help you become like me, and then you're going to go out and you're going to do the things that I did. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Now the reality is, is that, I said this in the last service, is that COVID did these two beautiful things for the church. Now COVID was terrible. I was telling Pastor Michael, our church in San Francisco was shut down for 67 weeks on lockdown. We could not gather for 67 weeks. I was just preaching to a camera. So, like, I've been in, I've preached in some churches that are very charismatic. You preach, and they're like, amen, mm, that's so good. Preach it, white boy. Like, I've been in different environments. And then I've been in other environments where people just, like, stare at me. And I used to love it when they would amen me because it made me feel like I was T.D. Jakes whenever I preached. Um, but now I'm, I can be in any environment whenever someone's, when I'm preaching, and they don't have to respond at all because I stared at a camera for 67 weeks, right? And so, but it was rough. It was very challenging. So COVID did a lot of bad things. We lost friends to COVID. We, we, we had a lot, of, a lot of loss. But it did two really good things for the church, I think. The first thing is it exposed nominal or cultural Christianity. What is cultural Christianity? It's, it's this. It's, it's you can say you're a follower of Jesus, but not actually follow Jesus. It exposed that. Like That's why so many people left the church when church was shut down, never to return. Here's why. Because people begin to look at their life when they went to church and now that they don't go to church and it's no different. So I don't need to spend my time going to church. That's cultural or nominal Christianity. 
and it exposed that. And that's actually not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. It's called pruning. It's a good thing. It's painful, but it's good. The second thing that it, that it exposed is this. So that's about people. But the second thing is that it exposed leadership in church. And here's what the exposure was. Is that many churches have what Dallas Willard called non-discipleship. Is that churches, specifically in the West, we've gotten really good about doing services, putting on programs, doing events. But oftentimes we're making incredible fans and followers of what we do, but we're not actually making disciples of Jesus Christ. And when we're not making resilient disciples of Jesus, when pandemics happen, when tragedy happens, when you walk through suffering, if your faith is not strong in the person Jesus, if you're not a true disciple of Jesus, it'll be easy to dis- for God to disappoint you or for you to be disillusioned by God or by the church and to walk away and to defect. And Dallas Willard said something brilliant in one of his books. He said, the elephant in the church is non-discipleship. Isn't that interesting? You ever heard that phrase, the elephant in the room? It's like the elephant in the room, everyone knows it, but no one wants to say anything about it. The elephant in the Western church is non-discipleship, according to Dr. Dallas Willard. And I think I would agree. And could it be that we've lost our, our vision for what it means to truly follow Jesus and to make disciples? Well, if you want to answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I think we should just ask Jesus. Jesus says, whoever wants to come be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. Jesus's three point sermon is very clear. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That was his three-point sermon. It was radically clear, it was radically challenging, and he made no apologies for it. Jesus, you ever notice in in the words of Jesus in some of his sermons, they just sound so different from our sermons many, many times. Like most of our book titles and sermons and stuff are like, uh, how to live your best life now. And I'm not throwing stones at anybody, but it's like Jesus said stuff like this. Like his book title would be like, die to yourself. You don't see those in the, you know, the airport, they have all the books. Like deny yourself, take up your cross, come suffer. Like that doesn't sell. No one's buying that book. Like, if you ever write a book, Pastor Michael, like, I can help you with your title, but just don't be like, die to yourself, because no one will buy your book, okay? If it's a coloring book, maybe, but uh, anyway, sorry. But that's Jesus. Jesus did not apologize for calling people to radical commitment. Jesus, Jesus would say things like, to weed out the crowd, because he knew, watch, Jesus knew that a lot of people were following him because they wanted, they wanted some of them wanted entertainment by his miracles, And some of them just wanted him to feed them. And he knew that in his wisdom. He's like, I know a way to really weed out who's really a follower of Jesus here. He's like, hey, eat my flesh, drink my blood. How's that one working out for you? Weed out the crowd. The disciples look at him and they go, they literally look at him and they go, this is a hard thing that you're telling us to do. And he's like, I know. See, Jesus, he was not concerned with having fans. He wanted followers. He he was not concerned with having people that just wanted to tick off Christian boxes or churchy religious boxes. He wanted people to be radically devoted to him. And so he called them to a huge commitment. But look at the first thing that he says in verse 34. He says, whoever. Everybody say whoever. Whoever. Come on, say it like you you love Jesus. Whoever. Whoever. I like that. Whoever. This tells us something about the invitation of Jesus. Tells us something about the gospel. It's radically inclusive. He says, whoever 
wants to come and follow me, whoever wants to come and be my disciple, whoever wants to come and learn from me as your rabbi and as your leader, whoever. Whoever means whoever. In the Greek, it means whoever. This is what it means. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter where you were born, your family of origin. It doesn't matter if you're rich, if you're poor. It doesn't, listen, it doesn't matter if you're straight or if you're gay. It doesn't matter what your proclivities are. It doesn't matter how you vote, Republican or Democrat. Jesus says this invitation is to whoever. It's radically inclusive. Revelations 22, I love what Revelations 22 says. It says, whoever is thirsty, come and drink of the waters of life. Freely, come and drink. See, this is what the spirit of Jesus and the bridegroom says. That's what the text says. So the spirit of Jesus is always open to whoever. He's like, I want anyone to come. Anyone should be able to walk through these doors. It's for whoever come drink freely. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come here. You don't have to have any prerequisites before you come here. There's no qualifications. This is open to whoever. It's radically inclusive. But then he says, whoever wants to come and be my follower must. Hmm. So if you want to and you make the decision to follow me, whoever you are, you're welcome, but you must. Must means you're required to do this. It means there's no allowances. There's no getting around this. This is going to have to happen if whoever you are, you want to follow me, is you must deny yourself. See, it's, 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 it's the paradoxical nature of the gospel. It's radically inclusive. It's for whoever. But it's also radically exclusive. And it's in this, is that whoever you are, whatever your proclivities are, whatever your lifestyle preferences are, whatever, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, you're welcome to come. But you need to know this. Jesus says you need to know this. There will come some moments where you're going to have to deny yourself to follow me. To which we don't like that. I don't like that. When God starts dealing with you on the spiritual journey, and by the way, he does it throughout the maturation process, the sanctification process in your spiritual journey. It's not just one moment when you gave your life to Jesus. It's 25 years later, he starts to deal with another layer of the onion that needs to be peeled off of your life. And it hurts when he points at things. He's like, "Mm, Jason, the way you're talking to your kids, that doesn't look like Jesus. The way that you responded to your wife, that doesn't look like Jesus. The way that you were... you." kind of fudge the numbers a little bit on your tax declarations. That doesn't look like Jesus. You see, he will begin to lean in and he'll begin to tell us things that we don't like. Let me ask you this question. If you're a follower of Jesus, when's the last time you didn't agree with something that Jesus was telling you? See, the reality is, is that he wants to make us in his image, but we're all the time are trying to make him in our image. We don't want him to disagree with something that we like. But Jesus says, you just got to trust me. In this particular area, you may need to deny yourself. And here's the thing. Here's what it's about. It's actually just about surrender. And it's surrender and trust. And he's saying, if you will just trust me with this area that I know you think you need or you want, if you'll deny yourself in that, trust me, on the other side of you making that sacrifice, on the other side of you humbling yourself and submitting in this area on the other side of this, you're going to be very thankful. You're going to look back and you're going to say, I can't believe I waited that long to follow his lead in this. You see, deny yourself is more than self-denial. See, self-denial is just like I'm going to deny myself these things because they're bad or whatever. It's actually so much deeper than that for Jesus in his invitation. Deny yourself means this, is I'm denying myself as the leader of my life. 
I'm no longer in control. I'm no longer leading my finances. I'm no longer leading my morality. I'm no longer leading my sexuality. I'm no longer leading my gender. I'm no longer leading Jesus. Whatever you say, my answer is yes, I'm following you. You're the leader. I'm the follower. It's not the other way around. I love how Eugene Peterson said it uh, so brilliantly in the paraphrase, in the message. He says, calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Remember that terrible song, Jesus, Take the Will? Gosh, that song. It's stuck in my head. Jesus, Take the Will. Um, do you remember the picture of the little meme that was like Jesus is behind the steering wheel and you're like the person's in the passenger seat? Like, this is the cheesiest thing ever. But the better picture is actually Jesus behind the wheel and the person's actually in the trunk of the car. Like, that's how... That's how much he needs to be in control of everything. Like, we all have had those, those my wife, those passengers that, that tell you what you're doing wrong when you're driving. That's my wife. She does that to me. I'm like, babe, who's behind the wheel here? I am driving this bad boy, you know? And I think we do that to Jesus. I think we're, like, in the passenger seat, and, and it has the, the impression that we're, we're following Jesus, but we're constantly giving him directions about where we think he should lead us. And that is not leadership in his hands. It's leadership in our hands. And Jesus says, you want to follow me? You're going to have to deny yourself and give me the keys and let me lead you. And I want you to trust me. Sometimes it doesn't make sense in the moment, but when we trust him, what I've discovered in my life, on the other side of obedience is always incredible blessing incredible revelation of how much he loves us. See, Jesus, when he tells you no, is, uh, no about a particular area, it's not that he's, he's trying to take the, the fun out of life. He's trying to take the sting out of life. He's trying to lead you to green pastures and to still waters because he's, he's not a dictator. He's a shepherd leading you. Is he leading you? You see, I remember one of the first things when I gave my life to Jesus at 18 was the Lord began to speak to me in a loving, gracious way. He said, it's time for you to forgive your father. And I was like, but I've already forgiven him in my heart. You know, how many of you have ever done that before? I've already forgiven him in my heart. We're good, we're good, we're good. And God's like, well, why won't you talk to him? I lived five houses down from my dad for two years and didn't speak to him. Silent treatment was my payback for him. For years, estranged from him, and the Lord kept saying, Jason, on the other side of you just being obedient in this area and surrendering, I'm going to bring such freedom and healing. You think you're free now? The freedom and the healing that you'll feel, feel if you will just trust me and surrender in this area. And finally, I just gave up the fight with God. Reconciled with my father, forgave him. Which, by the way, forgiveness is not always reconciliation. But for my case, he was leading me to reconcile with my father. And here's why. He spoke to me. He said, it's not just for your benefit. It's for his benefit. I want to heal your heart, but I want to heal his heart. And I remember after years of being estranged, then in 2004, met with my father, and God brought such beautiful healing. And from 2004 to 2000, maybe 14, 15, my father and I would meet for breakfast, and, and I'd ask him questions about his old sermons, and, and he would light up. And, and I remember seeing over the course of a couple of years, his countenance changed, and and, and God was using that, those moments when we'd have conversation to bring healing in his own life. 
And it was some of the most beautiful memories of my father that I have today. In 2018, he began to have a series of strokes and he went to be with Jesus. But I remember doing his eulogy and I remember thinking, what if I would have never surrendered in that area? What if I would have never been obedient and let Jesus lead me to reconciliation? What I would have missed out on. I have one of my siblings that they just, they refuse to reconcile. And guess what? One of their greatest regrets today is that they never forgave or reconciled our father. But I'm so thankful that I reluctantly followed him toward that pathway. See, here's the point of me telling you this. What is the area that's unsurrendered in your life right now that he's trying to lead you in? Maybe it's an area of morality. Maybe it's an area of your sexuality. Maybe it's an area within your marriage. Maybe it's, maybe it's something with your finances. What's an area that you know he has been talking to you about? It may, have, it may be something even for years he's dealt with you on, but you have just grown calloused in your disobedience, and now your heart has become hard. But today, right now, you, I feel it in the Holy, by the Holy Spirit. You sense right now him pushing that area again. He's saying, surrender and trust me. I'll make it better than you can ever imagine. This is what it means to follow Jesus as our leader. Sometimes you got to deny yourself. Second thing he says is this. He says, take up your cross. As if the challenge was not hard enough already, Jesus. As if denying myself is not hard enough, now you want me to to pick up a cross and follow you? What does that even mean, Jesus? Like, we don't really do crosses like that anymore. Like, is this a figurative thing? Like, do I just start wearing a nice shiny cross? Like, what are you saying, Jesus? You see, to us, we have... In in our modern Christian world, we have sanitized the cross. It's just shiny jewelry now. It's just something we see on a steeple. But to to Jesus' audience, when they heard, take up your cross, you know what the cross was for them? It was an instrument of execution, but even more than just death. It actually was, it symbolized four things for that audience in the first century. The first thing was radical rejection. I mean, you're rejected by a community of people. Then it represented shame. You're hung naked on a cross in front of people. Shame. Rejection. Shame. Suffering. Unbelievable suffering. Have you ever seen Passion of the Christ? Like, that's a depiction, but it doesn't even do it justice. The suffering. I've read so many accounts of the Roman execution with with, with the cross. It is so horrifying. The suffering, and ultimately, it's death. And to this audience, Jesus is saying, hey, for you to take something up, here's what that means. If you're taking it up or picking it up, it means you willingly embrace rejection, shame, suffering, and maybe even death, but specifically for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. This is radical. The invitation of Jesus, it is heavy. It is a sobering thing to consider. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's not pulling any punches. He's saying, guys, I want you to know that this is a radical commitment. It is not just go to church. It is not just pay some tithes. It is way deeper than that. I I want you to be willing to embrace being rejected for my namesake, for standing for truth, be willing to be rejected. In a culture that is doing this, even here in America today, a culture doing this, will you stand with Jesus? Will you stand with the truth of God's word? And will you do it to a point where you're willing to be rejected by your friends, by your coworker, by your customers, by your family, by your peers? Are you willing to feel rejected? Are you willing for people to shame you and to slander you and to cancel you? Are you willing to suffer 
suffer loss, suffer your job, losing your job, suffer losing. Are you willing, Jesus says? Are you really willing? Because that's what it could look like to follow me. Are you willing to maybe even die? Maybe literally, maybe it's just figuratively, you, you, you die in some relationships, that they just, they die. Your spouse leaves you because you stand for Jesus and they don't want to. Are you willing, Jesus said, that's what it could be if you follow me. Do you see what he's doing there? He's saying, guys, I'm not going to tell you that if you follow me, you're going to get a raise. You're going to, you know, live your best life. Things are going to be easy. He's actually saying, guys, I'm going to underpromise and overdeliver for you. Isn't that better than overpromising and underdeliver? What if Jesus said, hey, guys, you want to follow me? I'm going to feed you incredible, like five loaves, two fish. Like, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm going to break out some pasta. It's going to be unbelievable. Not Jesus. He's like, guys, you may suffer incredible loss if you follow me. He's telling them exactly that it may cost you deeply. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Though your salvation costs you nothing, it will cost you deeply to follow Jesus. To really follow Jesus. I think about this in, in my own life. And I'm very, I say, share this story very sensitively, sensitively, but it's my experience, and you may agree or disagree, it's okay. But a family member that I love dearly years ago, she, she's my sister in law, she gave me a call. And my wife, Jennifer, and I, we got on the phone with her, and, and we love Adrian so much. And, and she said, uh, I wanted to personally call you, and I know that we've already had some conversations about this. She said, but um, I'm, I'm getting married, and I know that based on your faith in Christ and based on your position as a pastor that uh, you probably don't agree with the decision I'm making. And uh, she said, but I know you love me. And uh, because of that, I didn't want to assume that you weren't coming to my wedding, but I wanted to invite you to come to my wedding. And it was a raw conversation and lots of tears on both sides. But ultimately, the decision that we made was to be people of grace, but also people of truth, and to be faithful witnesses to Jesus. And it was hard. It was very hard. And we decided not to go to this wedding and and I thought that the, the, the worst part of it was that conversation, but actually it was the weeks and months afterwards. The rejection from our family as a whole and the shame that my wife and I experienced. And some level of suffering and loss and death of some relationships. And it was so hard. I began to question, like, did we make the wrong decision? And did we really represent Jesus? And, and I had to keep going back to what does the Bible say? What does the scripture say? And what is the heart of God for humanity? And what is Jesus' design and desire for our marriage? I had to go back to that. See, as Christians, you're gonna, we're living in a culture now where you're going to have to live in this tension of grace and truth. See, Jesus caught the woman, in the, or the woman was caught in the act of adultery and thrown at Jesus' feet. What does he do? He extends grace to her. He says, where are your accusers? And neither do I accuse you. Grace. But he says, sweetie, go and sin no more. It was sin. Adultery was sin. So he showed her grace, but he wrapped it in, or he showed her, he exposed truth, but he wrapped it in grace. And it's this tension that we live in as followers of Jesus. Jesus had to live in that tension. He constantly had religious people trying to trap him by making a decision to choose between truth and grace. But he was, he was, the, he was not just, 
John 1 says he was the personification of both truth and grace. He was, he, that, was his, that was who he was, and that's who the church is called to be now. But it's a tension that we live in, and I remember it was, it was hard to have that decision that we made and to have family members that just kind of turn their back on us. But watch this. Years later, and, and by the way, we had my sister-in-law and her spouse over for dinner right when they got back from their honeymoon, and we did Christmas, all that stuff, all, everything you should do for family members. But it was something that we felt a strong conviction about as followers of Jesus. And it cost us. Fast forward years later, she went through a very messy divorce with her spouse. And a lot of the things that we warned her about, she experienced. And that's why we didn't want it for her. You know, the first people that she called was, she called my wife and I, crying, asking for prayer and counsel and comfort. And we were there for her. She didn't call the other family members that stood by her side then, but she knew that we would stand by her side. Because we loved her. Fast forward even more years later, she calls me and she says, Jason, I'm, I'm so excited for today. I said, why? She said, I want to invite you to my wedding. I said, invite you to your wedding? She had been dating this Baptist Sunday school teacher named Clay. I mean, he is the epitome of a Baptist Sunday school teacher. Imagine that in your mind, whatever that looks like. Sweet as apple pie. Glasses, this little chubby guy, you know. Loves Jesus. And she said, uh, but I don't want you just to come. I want you to officiate our wedding. And it was one of the most beautiful and redeeming moments. But I tell you what, in the moment of decision when we had to stand with Jesus, it cost us a lot. What is the, what is the area that you're afraid that you may lose if you stand for Jesus today? In our cultural moment. What is the thing that you're you're hoping you don't lose. Is it, is it acceptance? See, because the opposite of rejection is acceptance. The opposite of shame is what? Is glory. The opposite of suffering is comfort. The opposite of death is safety. And oftentimes our flesh, we want, we want acceptance. We want to be accepted by everyone. We, we want everyone to like us. We want, we want the glory. We, we don't want to suffer. We, we actually want comfort. We want safety. And Jesus says, but if you're going to follow me, you may have to lose these things. And that's what it means to follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me. And it's interesting where he says, follow me. It seems redundant. In the text, it says, whoever wants to be my disciple. But in really the original language, it's whoever wants to be my follower. And then it says at the bottom, follow me. Here's in essence what Jesus is saying. If you want to be my follower, you actually have to follow me. Which is the opposite of cultural Christianity and nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity and cultural Christianity says, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't actually follow Jesus. But Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you're actually going to have to follow me. And he says this on the hills of him telling them, here's where I'm going. It's the first time in the book of Mark that he reveals publicly that he will suffer. He will experience rejection. He will experience shame and he will ultimately die. And after he says that, he says, guys, this is where I'm going. Rejection, shame, suffering, Death, who wants to follow me? That's moral authority. I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I won't do, Jesus says. Which, by the way, if he asks you to carry a cross, know this, he will carry it right alongside you. You're never alone. I prayed with a, a father just a few, last service, and I looked at him and he said, I feel so alone in standing with Jesus about this decision. And I said, guess what? You're not alone. You will not carry that cross by yourself. Jesus is right alongside you. 
He will give you the grace and he will make it so sufficient for you in the time of your need. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. The invitation of Jesus is radical. But so is the promise. He says, if you will follow me, you may lose your life for my name, for the sake of the gospel. But in losing your life, you're actually going to find true life. If you try to save it, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it, you're going to save it. Sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? If you try to save it, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it, you're going to save it. Jesus says, but if you lose it for me, I'll make sure you find the greatest joy you've ever experienced in your life. I'll finish with this. There's a story about a hermit monk named uh, Telemachus, the Eastern hermit monk, the fourth century. He began to experience the unrighteousness of some of the cities. He saw like the debauchery of, of, the, of some of the urban cities of his day. And he was like, I've got to get out of this. I'm going to lose my life if I stay here. I've got to go. And I just need to be alone with God. So he moved into the desert, tended some flowers, alone, praying, studying the scriptures, fasting and solitude, just him and the Lord. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose that life in the city so I can save my life and be with God. And he did that for years. One day in prayer, the Lord spoke to Telemachus and he said, Telemachus, you are trying to save your own life, but you're actually losing it. You think you're saving it, but you're losing it. He said, I need you to be useful in my hands. I need you to go back to the cities where I can use you. And I know you feel like it's losing to go there, but, but this is where you're going to find true life. Specifically, the Lord spoke to him and said, Telemachus, I want you to go to the city of Rome. This is, this is history, church history. Telemachus travels across the seas and he goes to the city of Rome and um, he notices that the throngs of, of people, like crowds of people are rushing to the, to the Grand Colosseum. You could seat 80,000 people in that Colosseum, in the arena. So he, he, in excitement, he rushes with the crowds to go in to, to experience and to see what this is all about. And he's sitting in the stands and crowds are chanting and they're screaming and the chariots are going around and racing and it's this sight to behold. Such excitement in the air. And as it begins to build greater and greater and greater to his, to his surprise, the doors open and out come rushing the gladiators. At this moment in history, Rome is now considered a Christian city. It's now been Christianized and evangelized. And they, they used to martyr Christians in the Colosseum for entertainment. And lions would tear to shreds Christians for their faith. But they don't do that anymore because now they're Christians. They're nominal, cultural Christians. They're Roman Christians. But what they still do is they let the gladiators fight to the death because they're just prisoners. They're war prisoners. So Telemachus is watching this unfold. And the gladiators come out and they take off their helmets and they salute to Caesar and they begin to, to say, you know, glory to Caesar as we go to our death. May the fights begin. Telemachus is in shock that this is happening. He stands up in his monk clothes, his hermit monk clothes, the, 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 the garb of a, of a spiritual holy man, and he begins to scream at the top of his lungs, in the name of Christ, stop this. This is not right. Stop this in the name of Jesus Christ. Stop this. No one could hear his cry as he's standing for Jesus and standing for righteousness. So finally, he, he rushes down to the edge of the arena and he jumps into the arena with the gladiators. 
he runs in between two gladiators. Their swords are drawn. He puts his hands on their chest, and he begins to cry out, stop this in the name of Jesus Christ. Stop this. This is not right. The crowds begin to yell, stone him. 80,000 people. You're standing alone by yourself. 80,000 people saying, stone him. And we don't know if it was the crowds that stoned him, the soldiers. Some say that maybe even he was plunged through with a sword, but nevertheless, it was in that arena, taking a stand for Christ in the face of 80,000 opposers, that he breathed his last breath. But before he breathed his last breath, he said in the name, with tears streaming down his face, blood on his body, he says in the name of Jesus Christ, stop this. History tells us on that day, the crowd went silent. And one by one, every single attendee walked out of the Colosseum and the gladiator games never went on again. You see, he thought he was saving his life when he went to the desert, but he was losing it. But when he was obedient to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he lost his life, but he actually found true life. You see, Satan promises you today glory. But in the end, you'll only get suffering. Jesus, is, Jesus promises you suffering today. But in the end, he will transform it to glory. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we feel the weight of this moment. And we're good with that. Like we're okay with the sobriety of a moment of you calling us to radical devotion to Jesus. It's uncomfortable for some of us. Man, it sure would be easier to preach a different type of message. But this is, these are not my words. These are your words, Jesus. Whoever you are, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus, you said that. Today, I imagine you're probably here, and when you think about denying yourself, you think there's some areas of my life or maybe a specific area that's unsurrendered to him. The Holy Spirit's dealing with you about that right now. Listen, whatever it is, just trust Jesus and surrender. This is in his grace. He's saying, surrender and trust me. With your marriage, surrender and trust me. With your finances, surrender and trust me. With your sexuality, surrender and trust me. Whatever that area is, just listen, just, just say, say this to him in your own way. Say, I surrender. I hear you loud and clear. I surrender all. I surrender all to you. You're my leader, Jesus. I choose to follow you. There's some of you here today, I just, I sense this heavy today on my heart. As I share that story about my sister-in-law, some of you over the course of your spiritual journey, you've experienced suffering and loss because you stood for truth and you stood by Jesus and you tried to do the right thing, but you lost. You felt like you lost and you have suffered because of it. And maybe you've even felt a little disappointed and betrayed by God for letting you experience such great loss. Today, I just pray by the Holy Spirit that he would comfort you in your suffering and your loss, that you would know that it was not for nothing, but it was for Jesus. And he will reward you either in this life or the life to come. 
He will honor the cost that you have paid. He's proud of you and he's pleased with you. Holy Spirit, bring comfort. And maybe you're here today and you say, Jason, I'm, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm, I'm away from God. I'm not at peace with God. And I've made a lot of mistakes. I've tried to lead my own life and it's led me to nowhere. But today you say, Jason, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to surrender. I want to become a follower of Jesus. I need forgiveness of my sins and a fresh start. If that's you today, you've heard the invitation. You say, today I need Jesus in my life. We just lift up your hand. I want to pray for you. Count of three. One, you need forgiveness of your sins. Two, you need a fresh start and a new beginning. Three, you want to give your life to Jesus. All over this place, you say, I want to give my life to Jesus. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Scripture says, if we call upon the name of Jesus, he'll save us. We confess our sins to him. He's faithful to forgive us. So right now, just begin to, in your own way, just say, Jesus, I need you. I give my life to you. Forgive me of my sins and give me a fresh start and a new beginning. I choose today to follow you. And Jesus, I pray for us as a whole, as a community, that we would not be casual in our Christianity, that we would not be cultural or nominal Christians, but that we would follow you wherever you lead us. We'd follow you in radical devotion and surrender. We thank you for that. Give us the strength and the power to do it. We can't do that in our own strength. We need you, Holy Spirit, to empower us to follow Jesus. We thank you for it today. I pray your blessings over this church. In Jesus' name, amen.